0: Hello everyone and welcome to the March 11 edition of the WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Folsen, an attorney with the Floyd Scarin Law Firm. Thanks for joining us today. So let's get started with our litigation report. The Supreme Court has ruled that payments to injured employees for lost wages by a railway company are taxable under the Railroad Retirement Tax Act. The opinion in BNSF Railway Company v. Luce likens the payment to wages under the Social Security system. Michael Luce sued BNSF Railway under the Federal Employers Liability Act for injuries he received while working at BNSF's rail yard. A jury awarded him over $126,000 with $30,000 of that amount based on wages lost during the time he was unable to work. The employer claimed that the lost wages constituted taxable compensation under the Railroad Retirement Tax Act and asked to withhold nearly $4,000 of the $30,000 to cover the taxes. The district court in the 8th Circuit rejected the employer's requested offset, holding that an award of damages compensating an injured railroad worker for lost wages is not taxable. But the U.S. Supreme Court overturned the lower court's ruling that a railroad's payment to an employer for working time lost due to an on-the-job injury is indeed taxable compensation under the RRTA. The RRTA is a self-sustaining retirement benefit system for railroad workers that is funded by a payroll tax on both railroads and their employees. The railroad's contribution is, in essence, an excise tax and the employee's share an income tax. The Railroad Retirement Act entitles railroad workers to various benefits. Taxes under the RRTA and benefits under the RRA are measured by the employee's compensation, which both statutes define as any form of money, remuneration paid to an individual for services rendered as an employee. According to the High Court, the railroad retirement system mirrors that of the Social Security system. The Federal Insurance Contributions Act, FICA, taxes employers and employees to fund benefits distributed pursuant to the Social Security Act. Tax and benefit amounts are determined by the workers' wages, the Social Security equivalent to compensation. Both the FICA and the SSA define wages employing similar language resembling the RRTA and the RRA definitions of compensation. Citing previous decisions, the court held that compensation under the RRTA encompasses not simply pay for active service, but also pay for periods of absence from active service, provided that the remuneration in question stems from the employer-employee relationship. Justice Gorsuch filed a dissenting opinion in which Justice Thomas joined. Jorge Orozco was a carpenter for Southland framers. In 2001, he sustained an industrial injury to his back, neck, and head and filed three claims for benefits. By 2012, he was ambulating with a wheeled walker, and his wife was providing continuous home care for him. The PTP said that he required home care assistance at least eight hours a day, five days a week. The request was later increased to 12 hours a day. Anthem Workers' Compensation and the PTP agreed that as part of the UR process, an expedited RN evaluation should be done to assess his needs. In 2014, that was 26 months after this agreement, a nurse case manager performed the evaluation. She recommended home health care assistance 12 hours per day, 7 days a week, The PTP reviewed her report and adopted its recommendations and submitted an RFA to the employer. The RFA was denied on the grounds that the Medicare Benefits Manual indicates services should be part-time and not exceeding 28 hours per week. An authorization should not be made if these services are regularly performed by a member of the patient's household. The work comp judge found that the defendant did not conduct timely utilization review of the 2012 and 2014 Request for Authorization for Home Health Care Services. The work comp judge thus found that the defendant was liable for home health care services after 2012 up to 12 hours a day, 7 days a week. The WCAB denied reconsideration and affirmed the WCJ's decision in the case of Orozco v. Southland Framers and the State Compensation Insurance Fund. Here, the initial delay was timely. However, no UR determination issued within the statutory period of 14 days from the date of the medical treatment recommendation by the physician. The record reflects that the defendant's UR notified the PTP of the determination nine working days after receipt of the RFA on November 25, 2014, and four days after the statutory time period lapsed. Therefore, the Board had jurisdiction to determine the medical necessity of the request for home health care services. Now that it's facing its first trial, Purdue Pharma is exploring the option of filing bankruptcy to address potentially significant liabilities from thousands of lawsuits alleging the drug manufacturer contributed to the deadly opioid crisis. Purdue and its wealthy owners, the Sackler family, are under pressure to respond to mounting litigation accusing the pharmaceutical company, of misleading doctors and patients about risks associated with prolonged use of its prescription opioids. Purdue denies the allegations, arguing that the FDA-approved labels for its opioids carried warnings about the risks of abuse and misuse associated with the drugs. Filing for Chapter 11 protection would halt the lawsuits and allow the drug maker to negotiate legal claims with plaintiffs under the supervision of a U.S. bankruptcy judge. More than 1,000 lawsuits accusing Purdue and other opioid manufacturers of using deceptive practices to push addictive drugs are consolidated in an Ohio federal court. A lesser-known opioid case, Oklahoma v. Purdue Pharma, is scheduled for trial this May in Norman, Oklahoma. The Oklahoma trial could presage many of the arguments the jury may be presented in the national cases set for trial in the fall of 2019. The Oklahoma lawsuit seeks to hold Purdue and three other opioid makers, Allergan, Cephalon and Jensen Pharmaceuticals responsible for economic damages to the state and its residents. The presiding judge in the Oklahoma case ruled that the television cameras may be used in the courtroom. Every detail of what promises to be a dramatic trial could be broadcast to the American public, potentially affecting the outcome of any future opioid trial. The sources said a Purdue bankruptcy filing is not certain. The drug maker has not made any final decisions and could instead continue fighting the lawsuits. In our crime report, Holly Blakely, a 54-year-old former pharmaceutical representative, pleaded guilty for her role in an $8 million healthcare fraud scheme that netted her over a million dollars. The 30-count indictment portrayed her as one piece in a conspiracy targeted by a wide-ranging investigation in at least four states of pharmacies that provide compound pain medication. Blakely was scheduled for trial in February, but instead she pleaded guilty to wire fraud, healthcare fraud, bribery, and paying kickbacks. She now faces up to five years in federal prison while she remains on bond pending sentencing set for June 13. Blakely admitted her role in a scheme to pay over $400,000 in kickbacks and bribes to health care providers that prescribed compounded medications to individuals who did not need them. She and her co-conspirators attempted to disguise the kickbacks and bribes by writing fictitious and backdated consulting agreements. And in many instances, they submitted prescriptions to compounding pharmacies for patients that had never seen a medical professional. Blakely and her co-conspirators would occasionally forge the signature of a medical professional on prescriptions. In exchange, the two compounding pharmacies paid Blakely almost one and a quarter million dollars. Healthcare benefit programs reimbursed the two compounding pharmacies involved about 9 million dollars based on the claims submitted for compounded medications. The federal government reached a settlement with one of them in 2015, Medimix Specialty Pharmacy of Jacksonville, Florida, and a top referring physician Dr. Ankit Desai for more than 3.7 million dollars. <throat> Two men are facing charges based on possessing and transporting about 45 pounds of deadly fentanyl. 48-year-old Luis Aponte of Hesperia and 29-year-old Danny Diaz of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania were the ones charged and are still detained without bail. Aponte drove a tractor-trailer from California to a rest stop in Bloomsbury, Pennsylvania, where he stayed. Agents from the DEA were following him the next day when he got out of a truck with a backpack. Authorities saw him remove a plastic bag from the backpack and put it behind the driver's seat of a Jeep before driving off with Mr. Diaz. Both were later stopped in the Jeep, which was searched, and officers discovered discovered about 15 pounds of fentanyl, heroin, and $17,000 in cash. They arrested Diaz and Aponte, who later waived his Miranda rights and said he had more drugs in the tractor-trailer. Agents searched the truck cab and refrigerator on board and found another 29 pounds of fentanyl and 11 pounds of heroin. The count with which the defendants are charged carries a mandatory minimum sentence of 10 years in prison, a maximum of life in prison, and a fine of up to $10 million. And in medical news, as difficult as it may be to believe, some European compounders are demonstrating that they can make some medications for less money than drug makers. In a radiation-proof room at the Erasmus Medical Center in Rotterdam, a compounding pharmacist sits behind shielded glass as he carefully measures and mixes lutetium octoretorate, and intravenous treatment for certain types of cancer. The Dutch hospital has been offering it to patients for more than a decade at the price of $18,000 for one course of treatment. While that may seem high, The drug firm Novartis is asking more than five times that amount for its proprietary version of the same drug, Lutathera. This example is part of a protest against the high drug prices launched by an unlikely group of rebels, Dutch pharmacies. They have vowed to bypass drug company products and make treatments for a handful of rare diseases themselves, exercising their right to compound medicines. The dispute is part of a growing global backlash against high drug prices from the United States and Canada to Japan, and the campaign is being closely watched by health health experts elsewhere. Compounding is the ancient, ancient practice of preparing medicines for individual patients. Pharmacists are trained to compound, though nowadays most medicines are made by industrial producers. The Dutch pharmacies, whose production is on a small scale, acknowledge they may face legal challenges from the drug industry. However, such a case could set a precedent for other European countries. Pharmacies retain the right under European and American law to prepare medicines for individual patients. Common examples include making lower dosage versions for children or liquid versions for people with difficulty swallowing. However, in the United States, for-profit compounding pharmacies have tested the limits of what they are allowed to do in recent years, including mixing medicines in large quantities, in some cases, that has prompted legal conflicts with drug makers. Official scrutiny of the practice increased after the 2012 deaths in Massachusetts, which led to U.S. lawmakers requiring bulk compounding facilities, to register with the Food and Drug Administration, and meet quality and labeling standards still not as stringent as full FDA drug approval. The first two drugs targeted by Dutch pharmacies are the Novartis Lutheria and a drug called CDCA, registered in Europe by the name Lidiant. And a new study claims that knee surgery does not help everyone. According to the American Orthopedic Society Sports Medicine, worldwide, more than 4 million people get arthroscopic knee surgery every year. During the operation, a surgeon makes a small incision in the knee and inserts a tiny camera called an arthroscope to view the inside of the joint, then locate and diagnose the problem and guide repairs. Sometimes surgeons remove all of the meniscus, the cartilage that works as a cushion between the shin and thigh bones, and other times they only remove part of the meniscus. While this is minimally invasive, it is not risk-free. Patients receive anesthesia, which in any surgery may lead to complications such as allergic reactions or breathing difficulties. In addition, this specific procedure might potentially damage the knee or trigger blood clots in the leg. A review of past studies published in the British Journal of Sports Medicine suggests that many middle-aged and older adults with torn cartilage and pain in their knee are not likely to benefit from arthroscopic surgery. Overall, knee surgery was no better than many alternatives for improving physical function, and resulted in only a small reduction in pain. The lead study author concluded that although the surgery does not work for everyone, in selected cases, surgery should still be available to patients, but in most circumstances, patients should try physiotherapy first. If this does not improve symptoms, knee surgery may be beneficial, especially in patients without osteoarthritis and with specific symptoms. And some drug drug makers are now starting to cave under relentless price pressure. Now, drug maker Eli Lilly plans to sell a half-priced version of its popular insulin injection Humalog as it fends off criticism about rising drug prices. Major drug makers, including Lilly, have come under fire from patients and lawmakers over the rising cost of the life-saving medication used to treat diabetes. U.S. senators grilled executives last week from major drug companies, calling their pricing practices morally repugnant. Lilly's rebranded product will be called Insulin Lispro, while Homolog, which makes $3 billion in annual sales, will remain available. The cost of insulin for treating type 1 diabetes in the United States has nearly doubled over the five-year period. The list price for lilies authorized generic to be sold only in the United States will be $137 per vial. Two senators last month launched an investigation into rising insulin prices, writing to Lilly and other leading manufacturers, asking them why the cost of nearly 100-year-old medication had rapidly risen. The price of Lilly's Humalog rose from $35 to $234 per dose between 2001 and 2015. That's a 585% increase. Meanwhile, Norvo Nordisk and Sanofi SA, two other major insulin producers, said they were already taking steps to make insulin more affordable. Novo said it was offering insulin at $25 per vial at many national pharmacy chains and had a program to help uninsured patients. Its insulin has a list price of $137.70. And in other industry news, a new workers' compensation startup is riding the wave of global dealmaking. Analysts predict that the global insurance market will reach $1.11 billion by 2023, fueled by growth in verticals like health, property, casualty, and life insurance. And over $1 billion has been invested by commercial insurance startups since 2015, and deals totaled $2.5 billion in the first three quarters of 2018. That's an 89.8% increase year over year. Riding this wave is Pi Insurance, a Washington, D.C.-based workers' compensation insurance provider. It just announced it has raised $45 million in a Series B funding round. This follows an $11 million Series A round in July and brings Pi's total capital raised to $61 million. The fresh capital will be used to expand Pi's geographic footprint and add new distribution sources. Pi was founded in 2017 and operates as a managing general agency for Sirius America Insurance Company. It sold its first insurance policy in March 2018 and claims to have generated nearly $10 million in written premiums from thousands of small businesses among its customers. It claims to save those customers an average of 30% thanks to a proprietary analytics backend. Its policies are available in 19 markets across the country, including California. Paris-based Shift Technology has raised another $60 million funding round and has announced a new contract with CNA. Shift Technology claims to have a 70% hit rate in detecting fraudulent insurance claims. This March, it announced that it has entered into an agreement with CNA Financial Corporation, one of the largest commercial property and casualty insurance companies in the United States it will automate the carrier's fraud detection capabilities. CNA is the first commercial insurer based in the United States to partner with Shift Technology to take advantage of FORCE, the company's AI-native software-as-a-service-based fraud detection solution. FORCE uses advanced artificial intelligence and data science to not only detect potentially fraudulent claims, but also provide contextual guidance for investigation and resolution. FORCE uses AI to analyze vast amounts of data from multiple sources. The result is a dynamically generated fraud score for each claim that indicates how suspicious the claim is, contributing factors, and how the claim could be investigated. There are 70 insurance companies around the world relying on its products, such as MACIF in France, AXA in Spain, and CNA and Hirecar in the U.S. The startup has already grown quite a lot since its previous funding round. They now have 200 employees and customers all around the globe. In addition to its headquarters in Paris, Shift Technology also has offices in Boston, London, Hong Kong, Madrid, Singapore, and Zurich. The company plans to hire more people in Boston, including data scientists and developers. The company is also developing an automated claim processing solution. And that is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, your iPad, or your Android device by searching for the Work Comp Academy with your podcast software, and we also publish a daily flash briefing on the Amazon Alexa Echo platform. Search for workers' compensation news on Amazon. Again, I'm Renee Fols with Floyd Scarin, Minuki, and Langemann. Thanks for joining us today, and please drop by again next week for more news.